Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, our ophthalmology OCAPS and Border View podcast. This is your host, Ben Young. Andrew is still away saving eyes in a foreign land, so this week we bring back Amanda Redfern. Thanks, Ben. Happy to be back again. Please keep in mind that these podcasts are for medical education only, not to diagnose that weird thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who figured reviewing for clinic, OCAPS, or boards is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we'll review a high-yield topic and flesh out the why and the how. Today, we're reviewing nystagmus, and Ben is getting shifty-eyed already. Oh, God. Getting ocelopsy, just thinking about it. Amanda, how do you define nystagmus? Like, what is it? Good question. So, nystagmus is a rhythmic to-and-fro movement. There are different types of nystagmus, and they're, they're categorized based on the types of movements. So, all nystagmus, or all true nystagmus, have slow phases. If it has a fast phase and a slow phase, it's called a jerk nystagmus. But if it's only slow phases, to and fro, then it's a pendular nystagmus. What if there's no slow phase? Then it's just a saccadic intrusion. Okay, so that means it's not nystagmus. Correct. So what should one do when they're looking for nystagmus? Like, how can you characterize or classify it? There are a lot of different ways to characterize and classify it, but important things to note are, is it monocular or binocular? What direction is it in? Jerk versus pendular versus a saccadic intrusion like we talked about. Whether it's continuous or provoked by something like looking in a certain direction. Whether it's disconjugate or disjunctive. In disconjugate nystagmus, the amplitude of the oscillations differ between the two eyes, whereas in disjunctive, the direction of the oscillations differs between the two eyes. Okay, so disconjugate is amplitude and disjunctive is direction. Yeah, you got it. And then there's continuous versus a nystagmus that's provoked by gaze direction. Also, null points are important when talking about nystagmus, and that is the point where it is the dullest or even if it goes away. So, you know, Amanda, I saw this patient the other day, uh, you know, she complained of intermittent vision loss, who cared about that? But when I looked at them in far right gaze, I saw what was definitely in the stagmus. What do you think is the workup that you should do for that? It was in far right gaze and far left gaze. Well, how old were they? Uh, they were, I mean, they were a little bit older. And how long did it last for? Like a couple beats? A or couple beats. sustained for a while? It was a couple beats. Well, actually, that's pretty common in elderly people. And there may, if it's only a few beats in end gaze, there's no workup needed. So that's physiologic nystagmus, right? Yes. Okay, well, since we're talking about jerk nystagmus, nystagmi? I have no idea. Nystagmi? (laughs) You know, maybe we should start with ones that actually do require workup. Um, or, you know, maybe we can start with ones that affect children because that can be very dangerous. Okay, Ben, here's one for you. So you see a child that's only a few months old and they have a horizontal conjugate nystagmus that's even present when they're looking up. You also notice that the nystagmus is punctuated by foveation periods and the kid has a little bit of a head turn during that. What, what do you, you, okay, sorry. what? What are you what? thinking, Ben? So that sounds like congenital nystagmus, which is synonymous with infantile nystagmus. Tell me a little bit more about that. 
specifically, infantile nystagmus tends to be dampened by convergence or by looking at their null point, which they typically will have. And it will be worsened when they try to attend to something or fixate on something. So in terms of the waveform, what might you see? Right. So on the waveform, they tend to have an exponentially increasing slow phase nystagmus. And that's in contrast, actually, to latent nystagmus, whose slow phase will exponentially decrease. And we're going to go over that more in a bit when we go over latent nystagmus. So, you know, if I see a child with these features of congenital nystagmus, I mean, what do I worry about? What do I care about, Amanda? So you're worried about bilateral pregeniculate vision loss. So that could be a problem with the ocular media, like if they had bilateral cataracts which hopefully would be pretty obvious looking at them. But other things that are not so obvious, like bilateral optic neuropathy, most commonly optic nerve hypoplasia, in which case, if they have that, you should get head imaging and an endocrine evaluation. Another thing that could cause it would be in the retina if they had foveal hypoplasia, which you'd see in albinism or aniridia, or just a retinal dystrophy like achromatopsia or Leber's congenital amaurosis. And then another thing is to remind you what pregeniculate means. Remember that the optic pathway starts with the photon, goes to the ocular media, to the retina, and then that at, at the retina, it forms a single axon that travels all the way from the retinal nerve fiber layer to the lateral geniculate. So that, so that whole pathway is the initial part of the optic pathway, and anything after that is postgeniculate. So to remind you, a pregeniculate problem is anywhere from the lateral geniculate nucleus and the thalamus to the eye. So a postgeniculate problem is anywhere that is distal to the lateral geniculate nucleus. So it's essentially a cortical problem after that. So Amanda, th there's something about the optokinetic nystagmus that happens in patients with congenital nystagmus. What exactly was that? I'm glad you asked about that. So they have a really interesting finding in which they have a reversal of the normal pattern of optokinetic nystagmus. So remember that when you're using the OKN drum, and if you're turning it in a certain direction, for example, if you're turning it downward, the eye will follow it downward as far down as it can go, and then will quickly jerk upward, and then start following the stripes downward again. But in congenital nystagmus, they have the opposite response. So their eyes will be drifting upward and quickly jerking downward. Very cool. That sounds like another useful technique to work on a perhaps uncooperative uh, infant in the clinic. So, you know, we talked about the different causes of congenital nystagmus, but besides treating the cause of congenital nystagmus, whether it's a cataract or investigating the cause of their optic nerve hypoplasia, is there anything else you have to do for patients with congenital nystagmus? Well, you have to remember, if they have congenital nystagmus, they might have a pretty bad vision loss that could be treatable. And if you don't treat it, then it's very amblyogenic. And they may never, even if you correct it later, get good vision. So there are different types of treatments you can do. You can start out with medical treatments, but we really don't do that so much because the medical treatments are drugs like memantine and gabapentin. So instead of using these drugs that most people wouldn't feel comfortable using in children, you can do other things such as... So we discussed before that dampening factors of congenital nystagmus are convergence and attending to their null point. 
or moving that or changing gaze position to the null point. So you can try to induce both of those, both of those dampening factors. For example, you can give a patient base out prisms to induce convergence to help uh, reduce their nystagmus. Or you can do eye muscle surgery to reduce their nystagmus. The two available types of surgeries are the uh, Anderson-Kestenbaum procedure. I hope I'm pronouncing your names right. I'll respect the doctors. Anderson and Kestenbaum. That's where you translocate the recti muscles to change the primary fixation to the null point. The other is that you can posteriorize the rectus muscles because as you know, posteriorizing the muscles will change the fulcrum that the muscle is acting on the eye and reduce the force it can put on the eye, therefore reducing the nystagmus and allowing children to foveate for longer, which will help reduce their amblyogenesis. So speaking of congenital nystagmus, you know, we saw another child in clinic and they had a nystagmus, but it wasn't a congenital nystagmus. Instead, when we occluded one eye, we were just doing cover and cover testing, but when we occluded one eye, they started developing nystagmus. What could that, was that congenital nystagmus, Amanda? No, actually, that sounds like latent nystagmus. Hmm. Another name for it is fusional maldevelopment nystagmus syndrome, but really everybody just calls it latent nystagmus. Right, right. That's one that tends to also start early, but a difference, a big difference, even though it's also horizontal jerk nystagmus, is that it's its onset is induced by monocular fixation. So that's the amplifying factor in comparison with congenital nystagmus, where the amplifying factor is binocular visual tension or fixation. So on the flip side of that, a dampening factor would be adduction of the fixating eye, but this can lead to a head turn. So that's probably another way that these patients can present, right? Is that they have a chronic head turn that is noticed and it's found that when they're in primary, they have a latent nystagmus. But uh, the big tell will be talking to your techs if they're the ones doing the eye exam because they're, they're the ones who are going to pick up that the kid is not really tolerating it when they cover one eye to do the eye exam. Right. So remind me again, which direction is nystagmus going in latent nystagmus? Which way is the fast phase? So the fast phase or the jerk is to the side that is uncovered. Mm -hmm. or away from the covered eye. Gotcha. You know, another trick that one can use, especially since some of these children will be pretty uncooperative when you cover one eye, especially if they get this nystagmus when that happens, is to either use a high plus lens or to blur one eye with a fogged uh, occluder as opposed to the normally completely opaque occluder. That way the patient will tolerate it more and you'll be able to observe nystagmus. So in latent nystagmus, you know, we talked about the localization of congenital nystagmus, which is bilateral vision loss. What's the cause of latent nystagmus then? So you can get latent nystagmus with any condition that disrupts binocular development in the first six months of life. So most commonly, that would be things like infantile esotropia. But you can also get it if you have severe anisometropia, constant infantile exotropia, monocular cataract, corneal opacities, and unilateral microophthalmos. Okay, so I guess that makes sense. In latent nystagmus, it's either, basically, it's either one eye has a problem in developing vision or there's a failure of development of fusion compared to congenital nystagmus where both eyes have a problem. And it's not just a failure of fusion, but a failure of seeing with both eyes. Ben. What? You're 
in Pete's clinic again and you're evaluating a kiddo who has an asymmetric, small amplitude, high frequency nystagmus. One might even say kind of a shimmering nystagmus. You also notice that the kid is kind of nodding their head or bopping up and down. What are you thinking about? So that sounds like Spasmus Nutans. That's... A Harry Potter character. Close. It's, as you mentioned, a condition that has a classic triad of a shimmering eye movement. So as you say, the very small movements, but very fast movement. So it looks like it's shimmering. They can have head nodding and torticollis due to that head nodding or head turn. What age does it usually start in and how long does it usually last for? So it usually starts in the first year of life and it can, it typically resolves on its own after a couple of years, but it could uh, improve over two to eight years. And as we all know, spasmic nutans is completely benign. Wait, what? It just, you said it just goes away in like two to eight years, right? But what happens when it doesn't or when it's not benign? Hmm. Then that's right. It has there's a couple other things that can cause spasmus nutans. So what are those couple of things? Thought you were gonna tell me. Oh shoot. Okay. I thought you were gonna No, I'll say it. No, get out of here. It's no, 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 it's mine. Fine, mine, fine, mine, fine, mine, mine. So you should really be worried about a tumor, specifically a chiasmal or suprachiasmal tumor, like optic pathway gliomas. Other things that could cause this would be retinal dystrophies, like congenital stationary night blindness, or neurodegenerative disorders. So that means that the workup should involve neuroimaging. I know that there's some papers out there that dispute the yield of neuroimaging every patient with spasmus nutans, but for the purposes of BCSC and for test-taking purposes, spasmus nutans should have some type of neuroimaging to rule out uh, these conditions. And then like with congenital nystagmus, you should also monitor closely for amblyopia and strabismus and treat appropriately. Okay. Okay, so moving on to adults. Okay. Maybe I should start with a case. Yeah, you can, like, what, what'd you see? So this time you're seeing an adult, and every time they gaze eccentrically, they experience a jerk nystagmus beating in the same direction of their gaze. Oh, so that's basically um, the physiologic nystagmus, right? We but, already covered that. But this time it doesn't go away. Oh. It just keeps going. So the cause of gaze-evoked nystagmus is either dysfunction of the neural integrator. For vertical case, that's the interstitial nucleus of Cajal, which comes up later with other nystagmus as well, or as you know, the cerebellum. For horizontal gaze, it's the nucleus propositus hypoglossi and the medial vestibular nuclei. Sorry, what was that one? It's the nucleus propositus hypoglossi and the medial vestibular nuclei. They can also get rebound nystagmus when they shift from eccentric gaze to primary gaze, where the nystagmus changes direction. The idea is that there's increased tone in the opposite gaze after sustained gaze and eccentric gaze, so when they shift back, then the nystagmus reverses. So we talked about the anatomy of the dysfunction. What are the actual causes that can cause a gaze-evoked nystagmus that's sustained compared to physiologic nystagmus? So most commonly, it's toxic effects from drugs or medications or from cerebellar disease. But less commonly, you can get extraocular myopathies or myasthenia gravis can even cause it. So just like in spasmus nutans, we just image all these patients? I mean, you're not going to image that poor old fellow with only three beats, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's actually worth it to get some neuroimaging. So whenever a gaze-evoked nystagmus is asymmetric, 
you should be concerned about an ipsilateral lesion of the brainstem or cerebellum. And that should be your primary diagnosis until proven otherwise with neuroimaging. So think of things like Wallenberg syndrome. That's a very classic one that we actually saw in step one. Yeah. Or was that step two? Just to circle around, there's a lot of laws that have to do with eye movements like Sherrington's law and Herring's law. One that is exemplified in gaze evoke nystagmus is Alexander's law, where the nystagmus increases in intensity, uh, i.e. the amplitude and frequency, as the eyes move in the direction of the fast phase. So if the direction of fast phase is right and you move more to the right, then the intensity will increase. This use as well of physiologic nystagmus essentially, because when they go to extreme gaze, that induces that early nystagmus. But if they have gaze evoked nystagmus, it'll be much more apparent as they have nystagmus uh, either in you know minimal eccentric gaze and will worsen as they go into further eccentric gaze. So our this podcast is called Eyes for Ears, so we might as well talk about ears. What's an otologic cause of nystagmus? I think you're talking about peripheral nystagmus, right? Right. So peripheral vestibular nystagmus comes from some sort of lesion or problem with your semicircular canals, otolithic structures, or vestibular nerve. Think of people who have vertigo. That's the classic one. Right. You can induce it yourself by pouring cold water into your ear. As I discovered the other day, when I tried to clean some earwax. That was horrifying. Oh my god. I almost threw up from the nausea and vestibular nystagmus. I am a fool. I actually had a professor (laughs) in med school who did it as a demonstration for us. Yeah. And when I saw what he went through, I was like, I will never, I have not that kind of dedication to teaching. I was KO'd for like the whole day. That was... I didn't do it for teaching purposes. I did because I couldn't hear it in a year. But here why we would are. you put cold water? You know the cow's mnemonic. Does the cold water in which way your nystagmus goes? So that's the ears half of this podcast. Let's come back to the eyes, or I guess in this case, the brain. What are some central versions of a vestibular nystagmus? Oh boy, this is where we get to the downbeat and the upbeat. Mm-hmm. Let's start with downbeat, which is actually most common. Right. Downbeat nystagmus occurs most classically when you have a cervical medullary junction lesion or problem. So the classic one in that category would be an Arnold Chiari malformation, type 1 if you're counting. <laughs> and that is a cerebellar tonsillar protrusion into the foramen magnum. There are a lot of other potential causes, but Some that may come up are glutamic acid decarboxylase antibodies or anti-GAD antibodies or lithium or anti-convulsant toxicity. And of course, Wernicke's encephalopathy. What what are the anatomic causes of an upbeat nystagmus? If you see someone with an upbeat nystagmus, you got to be thinking about a possible posterior fossa lesion or issue. That would include things with the medulla and the anterior cerebellar vermis. Common causes would be demyelination, stroke, cerebellar degeneration, and tobacco smoking. So kids, this is why we don't smoke. And other reasons. This is the only reason you shouldn't smoke, really, (laughs) is you don't want to have an upbeat nystagmus. Ooh, ooh. And now a friendly, what do you call it? PSA. And now a friendly PSA. Don't smoke, kids. You will get nystagmus. You will end up on O-caps. Okay. So, <laughs> so, 
So to summarize anatomically the difference between a downbeat and an upbeat nystagmus, downbeat tends to be cervical medullary, so you can think that's lower, and then upbeat tends to be either the medulla or the cerebellar. So the medulla is also, uh, you know, it's a kind of the common ground, but the cerebellum is higher than the cervical spine. So downbeat is cervical medullary, upbeat is medullary or cerebellar. And that hopefully that up versus down can kind of help you remember the anatomic localization of up versus downbeat nystagmus. Are we almost done yet with the jerk nystagmus? Yeah, but we got one more interesting one. I remember that I had this med student evaluate a patient in the neuro clinic and that patient had a horizontal nystagmus in one direction. That student told me it was in the left direction. I said, okay, great. And then after I was finished with the chart, I went in and it was in the right direction. So my question to you, Amanda, is how do we get this med student kicked out of med school? They don't know their left and right. Well, we tell their dean, so it goes on the dean's letter. Mm-hmm. That's the valuable advice we want on eyes for ears. And by the way, we tell their dean that they did an awesome job diagnosing or helping you diagnose a periodic alternating nystagmus. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. Oh. <laughs> so what? how do you characterize it? What, what are the qualities of a periodic alternating nystagmus? It's basically what it sounds like, right? Basically, so they'll go through these crescendo-decrescendo phases in one direction, meaning that they'll get an increased amplitude frequency stagmus in, let's say, the right, and then after a little bit of time, it'll switch and they'll start having the same, but in the opposite direction, so to the left. And this cycle takes about two to four minutes. So if you see this happening in a patient, you really got to watch for several minutes to make sure that they don't alternate their their nystagmus and why is it important to identify it so periodic alternating nystagmus can localize to the cerebellar nodulus also the cervical medullary junction so it's prudent if you're suspicious to image these patients as well another potential cause of periodic alternating nystagmus is bilateral vision loss If it's a transient cause of bilateral vision loss, then it can actually reverse. For example, if a patient has bilateral vitreous hemorrhage, the hemorrhage resolves, then the periodic alternating nystagmus can resolve. That is a fun fact. I actually thought that was really cool. I was like, huh? I I think that's really interesting, too. So those are the jerk nystagmi. Next time, we'll come back for the rest of the nystagmi, including pendular nystagmus, and a hodgepodge of other ocular movement disorders. Thank you for listening to Eyes for Ears. If you like what you heard, then you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with number four. And it really helps to rate and review us on iTunes or whichever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Until next time, have a good week. Bye. Say bye. Oh, bye. No, what do you want to say? Say it. Peace out, motherfucker.